Hello, and welcome to State of Murder and our very first episode. We are excited that all of you are here listening, even though it might just be a few of you at first. We're hoping you like what you hear and you recommend us to friends and family and everybody interested in true crime. Um, we are going to be going state by state and possibly outlying maybe things out- eventually, maybe international, who knows. And for now, we're just going to go state by state talking about lesser known true crime stories and bringing light to those stories that maybe we don't hear about every single day. So sorry for all of those who want to hear about famous serial killers. We're not doing that. (laughs) I mean, they might be mentioned, but like maybe in reference to our story and then maybe how things are overlooked and why things are overlooked. But no, we're not going to focus on the Ted Bundys. The Jeffrey Dahmers. Son of Sam. BTK. Mm-hmm. We, the list goes on. So if you love true crime as much as us, you probably know all you about You already them. know those stories, and they've been done very well by people that probably know more about them than we do. Yeah. So a little bit about ourselves, because we are a minute in and haven't introduced ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Selena Cooper. And I am Amber Ratzlow. First episode is going to be a little unique where we're going to talk about the same story, a big story um, here in California. A big story for us. For us, yeah. And we're from there, we're going to be going state by state, but we're going to be telling two stories per state where I will tell Amber a story and she will tell me a story. So we'll all learn together. (laughs) A little bit about me. So I am born and raised here in Fresno, California. Um, I love the state of California. It's my favorite place to live. Um, although I haven't, it's the only place you've lived. <laughs> it is the only place I live. But the more I think about other states, the like, there's so many things that I don't find appealing. Like I couldn't live in the Midwest. There's like nothing. Can't that that can't is true. That. Speaking from experience, <laughs> um, the East Coast is very cold. I don't mess with snow or cold weather. Um, and let's see what oh, Florida, nobody wants, who wants to live in Florida? Not, not hating those people. <laughs> if any listeners are listening in Florida, there, you know what it's like. There yeah, are I'm some, sorry. we have dog. Selena has three dogs. I do. They don't respect the mic is on. I'm really glad that we're starting in the state that I am from and that, that we currently live in. So, um, I started my love of true crime back in probably middle school when the case we're actually talking about today was kind of my first introduction to it. I did always find it interesting, things like serial killers and all of the kinds of things that motivate people to get involved in crime, which is why I think I decided to follow a degree in um, psychology because it helped me figure out kind of why people do what they do and how people behave and what makes things happen and uh, specifically following a lot of like childhood experiences. So I focused a lot on child development and now in my current career, I work with kids and parents and, uh, start to notice, you start to notice different things about how people's childhoods start to shape. Absolutely. 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 Trauma can really affect people's brains and how it's developed. Mm -hmm. So a little bit about me. Uh, I have, I grew, I've grown up in a couple of places. So I was born in, uh, kind of outskirts of Seattle, Washington. When I was 12, my parents moved me to the great state of Nebraska, uh, 
I will tell you, I was not thrilled (laughs) at 12 to be moving from Seattle, which in my opinion is probably one of the greatest cities ever um, to a small town in Nebraska. But I do consider now Nebraska to be my home state. I have a great love of all things Cornhusker um, and the Big Red. But after I went to school for a history degree, Uh, My parents, my dad's a pastor, so he had moved to uh, California. And so I was like, sure, why not? Let's let's try the the sunny state of California. Little did I know that Fresno is very similar to the Midwest. (laughs) Uh, Farming, conservative, uh, very similar. But it's a lot closer to everything. So you can travel a few, you know, a few hours and you're at the beach or L.A., which I don't go to uh, San Francisco, which I do like to go to. Uh, so it's really awesome. Uh, I So as I mentioned, I studied history. Um, and then uh, when I was a little bit older, I didn't know what I wanted to do with history. So um, I started in, uh, my degree in social work. So Selena and I work together now. Mm-hmm. We both have kind of similar likes and passions. Mm-hmm. So how we met was at a job. We did a job <laughs> we no longer have, and her glad to be. Not, we weren't fired. There. We were not fired. We were not fired. We quit. <laughs> Selena, Selena had the good uh, decision to quit a couple more months before I did, but mm-hmm. then I followed her to her location. So now we still work together because yes. once you pair up greatness, you should never split it apart, in my opinion. You really don't. Something I think probably our managers might need to reevaluate. Every time we're in an office together, somehow we end up getting moved out of each other's offices. So yeah, I think we just shine too bright. <clears throat> we shine bright like diamonds. And yeah, Too much of a dream team. Yeah, Can't too much of a together. dream team. They need to... <laughs> bring us down a little bit back to their level. Um, So yeah, we work together. (laughs) We work with families who are experiencing trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we just kind of, you know, bonded a really tight friendship at the loves of True Crime, Bob's Burgers, Bob's Burgers, Shit's Creek, and Wendy's Spicy Chicken Sandwiches. Wendy's Spicy Chicken Sandwiches. Although I don't eat those anymore because I'm now a vegetarian, but... Uh, best spicy chicken sandwich in the game. I don't care what anybody says. Chick-fil-A is overrated. I never tried that Popeye's thing. Nope. So I'm sticking with Wendy's. Um, so what got me into true crime? Uh, well, I was also in middle school. I'm slightly older than Selena. So we'll put that out there. I won't say how much older, but I am older than Selena. Just a little. Just a little. When we were going out for her to look at stuff for her wedding, somebody thought I was the groom's mom. I was very offend, offended by that. <laughs> Say the least, I was not. I told Selena we are not getting anything from there. <laughs> but I was just talking to my mom about that. And we that. didn't. And we did not get anything from there. I am not that much older than Selena. Not at all that much older. But my, my true crime story we will be discussing. I'm not going to name it. We're going to be discussing it when we hit Nebraska, the great state of Nebraska. Um, But it really, really got me into true crime. And then also when I was probably 12, no, I was probably younger than 12. I loved Bonnie and Clyde. Like I saw the movie and just something about 
the like just kind of their reckless abandon. I don't know. It just really fascinated me. I loved mobsters. When I was like seven years old, I wanted to be a mobster girlfriend, not the wife, because the girlfriend had all the fun. I don't know. <laughs> I'm I'm a pretty weird person. Mm. Um, so my parents were got really concerned with all my love of murder and true crime. Uh so that's maybe to freak them out. I don't know. I just really liked it. Hey, but you turned it into good because you're helping people. We're making a podcast that will hopefully be at least semi-successful. And we'll know. see. <laughs> so that's how I got into it. Um, other than that, yeah, I think we're going to move right along into our California case. Yeah. Uh, the case of Marcus Wesson, the vampire king of Fresno. Yeah. March 12, 2004, police were called to the scene of a domestic disturbance. A mother had reported that her child was being held hostage and the man inside wouldn't give them up. What police would encounter is Marcus Wesson and inside the home, nine dead, all shot with a 22 caliber gun. How could this have happened? To better understand, we're going to take a look into Marcus Wesson and his family. So starting literally at the beginning. Uh, Marcus Wesson was born in Kansas City, the one in Kansas, not in Missouri, uh, in 1944. He is the oldest of four. He has two sisters and a brother. His dad, Benjamin, was a World War II veteran who worked odd jobs but couldn't really seem to lock anything down. And his mom was a nurse and known as the strict disciplinarian of the family. Very into church, very strict discipline. Like the kids had to do daily Bible readings. There was a story someone shared, a family member shared in court um, after the incident happened where they remember her hitting her kids with like an electrical cord or something. Mm. So definitely strict on the discipline. Uh, the family moved a lot uh, due to all the evictions that they would continue to get. Um, and that was due to Benjamin spending a lot of the money coming in. Um, he was a sadistic drunk. So he would drink a lot um, and waste all the money instead of paying for the homes that they were living in. His father was neglectful. Um, he got in a lot of fights. And when he would be drunk, he would attempt to kiss and hug his kids in a sexual manner. Uh, one of Wesson's childhood acquaintances even testified in court that his dad had tried to molest him um, and coax him into letting him give him a blowjob. So, uh, which led the friend to believe that Wesson suffered similar abuse by his father, although it was never really said. Um, Wesson never got the chance to speak in court. So, none of those were ever really substantiated. Uh, it's interesting to know, like thinking about these things, um, the more that we're going to talk about it is a lot of similarities between uh, Marcus Wesson and his father, Benjamin, start to appear um, as he grows up. So back to what we were saying about like the childhood trauma. Well, yeah. And it's I mean, if everybody kind of looks at their past and their history and how they were raised, I, a lot of times we can find similarities and how we are to at least one of our parents, mm -hmm. I, in my opinion. Yeah. So, like, I take after my dad, and my my brother takes after my mom. Hey, how funny! Me too. I am <laughs> like one hundred percent my dad. Like, that's you a, totally are a joke, and like everyone says it. Uh, and my brother is a lot like my mom, just 
super chill. Yeah, I like, can see that. They go with the flow. Not a big deal. And me and my dad are not that person <laughs> at all. Back to the family. So they were Seventh-day Adventists, um, and Wesson would even sing in the church choir. So they followed some of the um, the rituals, like the Saturday is Sabbath. Um, it didn't mention anything about them eating vegetarian or anything, although that does come up later that yeah. they don't eat and meat. I think Seventh I, don't, I mean, my limited knowledge on the Seventh-day Adventist is that they, I think, try to live simply and cleanly. Mm-hmm. So, and like, they don't wear jewelry. I know that because my friend in high school was a Seventh-day Adventist mm-hmm. and she wasn't allowed to wear jewelry. And I remember that was a big rebellion for her. That she so, wore jewelry. Yeah, that she wore jewelry. But definitely they they went to church on Saturdays. So. Yeah. So Saturday was a big thing. Uh, to this day, the entire Wesson family, with the exception of Marcus Wesson, is recognized by the church's members. And they have, after everything that happened, they denied that he was a member of the church, despite singing in the choir as he grew up. The family had a lot of pets, um, mostly the strays that Wesson would nurse back to health. He'd care for a lot of animals and bring them back, and they would keep them as pets. He also really enjoyed fixing things um, and working on different things. So he would fix toys for the neighborhood kids. Uh, he even built like a go-kart type thing it mentioned in um, one of the books I read uh, for one of the kids in the neighborhood. Um, also, a lot of the information that I've gathered is from a book called By Their Father's Hand by Monty Francis. It definitely was very in-depth and had a lot of information. So that's pretty much where everything I mentioned comes from that book and the Wikipedia article, which also pulls a lot from that book. So he excelled at track and field in school, but only attended until the 12th grade. He never received a diploma. And as far as I know, never got like a GED or anything like that. He was a loner. Well, I don't even know if the GED was a thing back then. I have no idea. I don't know. I don't, who knows when the GED became a thing. Uh, He was described as a loner, and when he was around others, it was mainly spent trying to convince them of his various beliefs, one of which was that homosexuals were spiritually superior to others, um, which was definitely not something that the church generally followed. Oh, Um, yeah, especially if you're in, like, the 50s and the 60s. Yeah, definitely not thinking of society, really. No, homosexuality (laughs) is definitely not something that was accepted back then. Yeah. So he believed that they were spiritually superior to others. Um, and this possibly could have had something to do with the fact that in the late sixties, Benjamin Wesson engaged in a relationship with an 18, 18 year old nephew who came to stay with the family. He eventually ended up leaving his wife and the two men moved in together and they moved all the way to San Jose, California. So definitely moved pretty far away because I believe at this time, because the family moved around a lot. So I know they were in Kansas at one point, Missouri. So they were somewhere in that area when he went to California. In the late seventies though, Benjamin returned to his family um, and took them all that were left at the household to Washington. Uh, How weird. Like, could you imagine the, like 10 years later? Okay. Yeah. Just come on in. Like, where have you been? What have you been doing? Like, I, I, I wouldn't, I would never be able to do that if I, I'm not married, but if I had yeah. my husband just disappeared for with 10 years with, with, a, with a nephew and they had a relation, incestuous relationship. And then he comes back and is like, just kidding. I'm back. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they came back, they moved all the way to Washington and that's where Benjamin would remain 
and the family would remain until Benjamin died in 2004 from prostate cancer. And this would be just two weeks, I believe, after yeah, Wesson's arrest or something. Yeah. It was some, some – It was really close. Rather. Yeah, it was very close to the incident. So during the time um, that all of this was happening, Wesson had enlisted in the military since he dropped out of school. So he was about 19 at the time. Uh, he worked as an ambulance driver and a medic during the Vietnam War. Although he wasn't in Vietnam, he was actually stationed in Europe. And he was honorably discharged in June of 1968. Although I couldn't find any reason, like, why, what the honorable discharge was for. Because that seems pretty, like, sudden. Like, he only was in the Army for a few years. But uh, fun fact, the military records aren't released until... Uh, to the public until 62 years after service and he is at like 50 something years so oh in like a few years we can find out why but for now until 62 years after he ended service that would be what 1968 so we're at 52 years so 10 years we'll, yeah we we'll can fi- find fi- out why he was honorably discharged. i wonder why they picked that random that 62 <laughs> years maybe because they figure like they might not life be around. expectancy <laughs> And matter. like, why would you, why would you care if you were honorably discharged? I would think the dishonorable discharge would be the one that you would be like, I'm not going to talk about. I want it in secret. Yeah. And then, but, but then it's like, any tour, any anything. sort of military record. And maybe it could be for like protection. I don't, if any, oh, could be. if any of our listeners are military members or happen to know enough about the armed <laughs> services to tell us why I, 62 years, we'd like to know. But that's just what the website online said when I went to look up military records. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so after his return to the States, Wesson attended college, but again, dropped out before receiving a degree. I couldn't figure out where he went to college, but I believe it would have been in California because he was in San Jose at the time, time. Yeah. Uh, which is where, which is another weird place to go because his dad used to live there or still did live there at the time. Uh, so in San Jose is where Wesson met uh, Rose Solorio, whose maiden name was also Meterina. And some reports I saw said that her name was Rose Solorio, and other people said Rose Maitrina. So whatever her name yeah, is. Yeah, I the saw. Time. Yeah, and I my, saw it both ways, so I wasn't really sure. She was 13 years older than him. Uh, he moved in with her and her children from a previous relationship, and together they had Wesson's first child, his son Adir. Adir. Uh, Wesson was 25 at the time. And the family pretty much lived off welfare. Wesson began taking more of a role in the family, especially when it came to disciplining. So he would um, he would severely like punish the children. A lot of physical discipline would be in place. He would so have, very similar to how he was raised. Mm-hmm. He would have the family live off a vegetarian diet, according to the Seventh Day Doctrine. But he would encourage the children to steal. As he was living with the family and the other children, he began showing interest in Rose's young daughter, Elizabeth. And when she was 14, he got permission from Rose to marry Elizabeth. Rose didn't want the other family members to find out. And it's like a weird situation. So it was kept very secret. But then Elizabeth became pregnant. Um, Not too soon after Wesson was allowed to marry her. What is she thinking? Like, I, I'm going to say that a lot with a lot of this case. It's like, what are people thinking? But they have a kid together. They're together. And he's like, Oh wait, let me. Yeah. And even with your daughter. And even too, it's not like, I mean, 
it's not like he was 18 and she was like 16 or 17. Like she was 14, very clearly a child. And he was in his yeah, mid to like late 20s. Years. Yeah, he's 12. I think he's 12 years older 12. than Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, actually, we can look. She was born in 59 and he was born, when did I say? In 46. 46. So that's, thir- yeah, 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely not even like two kids wanting to get married. It was literally like a full-grown man and a child. So again, they didn't want the family members to find out it was a weird situation, which kind of speaks to the control he maybe had over a lot of stuff that the women in his life kept allowing certain things to happen. So once it was discovered that Elizabeth became pregnant, one of her brothers, uh, Jesse, confronted him, which resulted in a fight, and Jesse, and Jesse ended up getting beaten by Wesson, and the cops were called. Um, he made, Wesson made a deal that if Jesse wouldn't press charges, he would leave and not come back, and so that is what happened. He, Wesson and Elizabeth left, and at 15, she had their first child, Dorian, and over the next four years, she had Adrian, Kiani, and Sabrina all like a year back apart, back. like back to back. So yeah. she Elizabeth ended up dropping out of school and started uh, staying at home to care for the kids and even homeschooling them. Yeah. Well, uh, this whole situation, you have to think, because like Wesson was in Elizabeth's life from when she was really young. So like mm-hmm. seven or eight. And so just the grooming and the manipulation of that family, mm-hmm. like the entire time, because you'll see later with uh, how they start raising their kids, their kids. And then Elizabeth's sister's kids, like that whole family was so manipulated by, by, this, one by this one man. And just the, I was reading cause a lot of it kind of talks about how he's a cult, mm-hmm. like his family is kind of cult like. And so like just cult leaders. And I, I wonder about his personality and his career. Like if he had some charisma, like what was his, like what was his was draw? Mm-hmm. And even too, like what had the family gone through to allow that? Cause usually going um, by what you're saying with the cults, usually they feast upon people who are like in at risk or in need, they need to belong to something or they feel isolated and cast out and they want to belong to this family yeah so what happened in this family's life to to draw that in yeah and I mean like Rosemary Solaro the Elizabeth's mom I mean you look and she's had a couple of relationships she has a number of children Mm -hmm. uh and so here he comes he's a lot older he she's a lot older than Wesson no I think you're confusing Rosemary with Rose oh Rose I think was just the one Parent wears. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. Sorry, we are looking at a little diagram we made of all the relations in this family because it gets a little complicated. We will be. There's a lot of similar names. There is. I think there's a good three rose, rosemaries, and roses. Yeah. So bear with us as we try to make sure Sure. that we get the right person. Um, So, yeah. So, Rose Solorio is Elizabeth's mom, and then Rosemary Solorio is Elizabeth's sister. So. But again, these concept maps that we have, we will be sure to sure, share. Sure. So that way, as you're listening. You, yeah, you can follow along on the complicated web of family members. And who's related and married. But and she's she's older. Them. She's significantly older. Like, she's 12 or 13 years older. You're talking about Rose? Yeah. yeah she's 13 Marcus years older than Wesson. Marcus. So it's like, it's just very interesting that this young man comes 
Because he's young. He's like 19 when they meet. Yeah, I believe so. Because, um, yeah, when they had the first son, he was 25. So, yeah, he probably was around yeah. his early, early 20s. So, um, well, while Elizabeth was staying home with the kids, Weston got a job working at a Wells Fargo. And he stayed there for about three years, which I want to say is probably one of the longest times he was Absolutely. to be yeah. like, employed. Because he was very much like his dad in his employment and like floating mm-hmm. around. Yeah. And he ended up quitting and he stated that it was like too conservative for him. I think they didn't approve of like the dreadlocks that he was starting to grow out. Uh, so during this time, Elizabeth and Marcus met a woman named Illabel Lee. And they started, a, Wesson started a relationship with this woman and eventually asked her to become his second wife. Um, and she seemed open to it um, from what I've read. Elizabeth, not so much. <laughs> so when she didn't seem to like it, the role of second wife kind of devolved into more of like a handmaid kind of concept. I don't know if it's similar to handmaid's like tale. a handmaid's tale. <laughs> I'm going to assume because it's a... The, that's based off like a religious passage yeah. is the whole point of the handmaid's tale another mm-hmm. tv show and book uh but it's and it comes from the bible kind of, yeah yeah that a someone has a kid for someone else but i don't think it was but quite they, this exact thing. i remember reading about her and it didn't sound like they had like they had a sexual relationship but not sexual intercourse did you read that i don't remember where i which I book know. i read it from but that they oh I think they did it because Elizabeth Elizabeth didn't want so they him, wanted to be married yeah because she Elizabeth didn't that. want Illabel to have children with Marcus ah okay I remember reading that in one of the books we mentioned so, yeah so Illabel definitely did not like the fact that she was gonna have to be like a handmaid not get any benefits I guess I mean being a wife I don't well, know I would imagine it'd be like the whole situation is weird anyway yeah but. like the second. <laughs> What, you know, and whatever you want to do, I'm not judgy. Like, I'm not, I'm just not being judgy here, but I just don't think I'd want to be like the second. Oh, no, person. I would be super like, selfish. I don't, yeah, like somebody <laughs> more important than me and my man's yeah. life. The day my husband asks for a second wife, he's out. <laughs> the dogs will be packing his bag like, bruh, you messed up. We're going to have it. fun sleeping in the bed tonight. You're out. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely an interesting But Elizabeth was younger too. She was. She was young and I think on her own kind of yeah. in central California. She'd been like exiled from her, from her family because she'd gotten pregnant at a young age. Because I want to say at this time, were they in San Jose still? Or I think they'd moved to Santa Cruz at this yeah. point, right? So they were in Santa Cruz. Uh, so when Illabel didn't appreciate the lack of commitment from them, she just decided like peace out California and she left California. Yeah, her brother altogether. went and picked her up. Yeah, she had family. So, so looking out as the family continued to grow, Wesson moved uh, to the Santa Cruz Mountains. So more the isol- so starting that isolation period, and other family members started to grow suspicious because uh, Wesson's young daughters kept becoming pregnant. So we're going to talk. So the moving around thing comes together because they had the little camp like campsite. That they would go to. And then they also had, they lived off of boats. Mm-hmm. So they had kind of like, I don't, I'm trying to think, a float, a flotilla? What is that? Is that? That's, I don't even think a word. <laughs> now you're making up words. I'm making up words. But like they had a tugboat, a broken down tugboat that they lived in. 
And then they had a number of other boats alongside it that were also broken down. Um, and so they would kind of float between places. Mm-hmm. So you had the daughters. So first you had, um, so all the daughters kind of got pregnant months apart. Mm-hmm. So you had Sabrina um, who had a son. Then you had Kiani who ended up having two children mm-hmm. uh, with, with them. And then also, I don't know if we mentioned, but Wesson and Elizabeth are raising seven of her sister's children. Yes. And so they have a lot of, they have a lot of kids, it's like 17 that, kids. Yeah. Total. They have a lot of kids. And I think it mentioned to that Rosemary, Elizabeth's sister just thought, Hey, they have all these other kids and seem to be yeah, she was, able to take care of them. So she had uh, sub- some, she was using, having some substance abuse issues and, was putting her, I mean, she was raised with Marcus as kind of a father figure. And so I think she thought, I'm hoping this, that she thought, okay, this is the best place for my children because I'm not able to care for them at this time. So so Wesson had children with, with a couple of his daughters and he also ended up having children with his nieces. So uh, Rose Solario, they had two children together. Sophina had a son with him and Ruby had a daughter. Uh, So during that time, so everybody is kind of noticing in the book I was reading, like neighbors were getting, well, not, they weren't, they didn't really have neighbors, but townspeople Mm -hmm. were kind of starting to notice that the girls were really withdrawn. They were pregnant, uh, but they never saw babies. Mm -hmm. And I think there was also other family members that they were sometimes around that started to be like, what? Why are they so young and so pregnant? <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, and in one of the books that mentioned, Jesse came, comes back into it and he starts questioning, how are they getting pregnant? Like, and he knows right away that it's Wesson mm-hmm. and he confronts Elizabeth about it and she denies it and is like, no, they were artificially inseminated. And like, like who would do that to children? <laughs> yeah. Cause they, they, they're not adults. They're kids they are like 15 years old, you know, 15, 16, 17. So I don't really see. Also, I think at this time we're in what the nineties, like, mm-hmm. do you know how expensive it is to like artificially? Okay, she, yeah. Insulin? And they don't, like, have, especially in the nineties. Yeah. Like who would be doing this to children? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, uh, Marcus Wesson at the time, we were mentioning that they lived on boats. And so he was found guilty of um, fraud because they didn't, when they were on welfare, they didn't claim, you have to claim your assets and he did not, they did not claim the boats. Um, So he spent some time in prison for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, they don't have a lot. The girls talk about living up in the camp when they're at the campsite, like the having to bring water uh, they were running out of food. So we were, the stealing comes into play here too, because they start stealing. Well, not really stealing dumpster diving. They dumpster, they did a lot of dumpster diving of um, places. So like going to fruit stands and going behind markets to like survive because there's so many mouths to feed and they have to come up with ways. So that's what they started doing. Uh, so after the girls gave birth to their children, they ended up moving um, back. So they kind of moved back and forth. They spent summer months up at the camp, 
site. And then when they, and then the winter months, they would come down from the campsite and go to like San Jose, Santa Cruz. Uh, during this time, the sons got jobs and were expected to send money to the family to help support them. Because mm-hmm. uh, Wesson, as we said, Wesson and Elizabeth never really had jobs. It was um, their children. So when they needed, so they were running out of money. Um, right before they moved to Fresno um, in 1995, Brandy, a niece, one of the nieces, after she was being sexually molested, she reported that um, she had decided that she wanted to not get pregnant. And so she decides to run away from the campsite and she leaves without saying goodbye to her sisters and her cousin. Well, are they cousins? How would they? I'm, <laughs> yeah, they would be cousins because yeah. aunt. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Cousins. cousins. <laughs> um, didn't say goodbye to the cousins. She tried to uh, set up, leave like a leave a note in rocks in a little clearing. Um, but she runs a chance of calling her mom. Her mom tries to convince her to go back but she doesn't. So during this time after Brandy ran away, um, Marcus, the lesson this whole time has started writing his own more like book of prose and ideas and his kind of warped version of Christianity. Um, so he said in his book that he believed that Jesus was a vampire, which okay, going hand in hand, like, I guess, the resurrection. Ra- ra- yeah, he arose from the dead. The 90s had a big um, draw with vampires. So he loved uh, Anne Rice, interview with the vampire, which a lot of us did like that. So but that didn't make me think I was a vampire. <laughs> or that Jesus was, or a vampire. Jesus was a vampire. But he he kind of took that and ran with it. Uh, so he believed that he also was a vampire, but the reason why he could go out in the sun is because he had a soul. Um, And so I guess that means that you can go out into the sun that, but with his belief, uh, he kind of brought, taught the children the same thing. So the younger children thought they were like vampires and dressed really vampire like his daughter Sabrina would paint her face white and wear red lipstick to look more like a vampire. So that's their upbringing while they're traveling and going from campsite to campsite. Here 1993 Wesson became fascinated with David Koresh um, and the Branch Davidians. Uh, So he made, so this was I was 13 in 1993, so this is very, very, like, I can totally picture watching it on TV and being, like, the whole nation was glued to the TV on this incident. Uh, So David Koresh, he, in Waco, uh, he had kind of, he had a cult, and the FBI ended up raiding it, and David Koresh and his followers (laughs) had a big shootout, and many of them I don't know if all of them died, but many of them died. I just no, remember I think the, there were some. I think some died. got out. Uh, but Wesson really thought that David Koresh was teaching the word. Like yeah. this is this is what it meant to be a true believer. And the government is messing yeah. up this man's life yes. and getting all involved. Absolutely. <laughs> and so he started training his children and nieces and to be that same way that they would want to. If government came involved, 
they needed to end their lives. So it was kind of like a suicide pact Mm -hmm. and they needed to be his strong soldiers. Uh, So his daughter, Sabrina was the best at this. So she was really interested in guns. They practiced shooting. So there, there was an incident where they thought that CPS was coming. And so all the girls got the guns and were ready to shoot everybody on board the boat because Wesson was gone at the time. And they just were like, okay, this is it. This is the end. Uh, But they ended up calling Wesson and he was like, no, don't do it. And so they ended up not, but like just keeping in mind that like, this is how they're raised. They're like really manipulated thinking, okay, this is what we need to do if anything happens. Wesson liked to keep the boys and the girls separated because he didn't want any, any, I'm going to hanky panky going on. (laughs) I guess like, it should, yeah, because I think he saw all women as his women. His property. They were his property. Um, so they, boys moved out, were expected to move out, and the girls were expected to remain in the home. Uh, so Brandy ran away at one point, and Ruby also, she ran away a couple of times from the family. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a few times for her to actually like officially leave. Yeah. Well that, I mean, that's a very domestic violence thing Mm -hmm. is, you know, trying to, I think it takes, it's average of like seven times to like leave an abuser. And so I'm sure he, he's married in their eyes. They're married to Marcus Wesson. They all had these like fake marriage ceremonies. So they really have this tie and this connection to this man. Mm -hmm. So after Brandy had uh, moved away, they end up, uh, moving to Fresno, mm-hmm. uh, where Wesson, and this is kind of, cause I don't understand they, in the books, it talks about how he got them jobs at fast food restaurants. So I was wondering how he did that. Like, I'm not, I don't quite understand how he gets them the jobs, but it whatever. Could be like him filling out the, the applications, applications to make them look a certain way yeah. or. I don't know, trying to go in and be like, oh, my daughters really need, need jobs. jobs. Like, yeah. And I don't, I mean, this guy apparently has some type of charm. Charm that he, he can convince people to believe a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So the girl, they moved to Fresno. Uh, they had lost the, they're not real. I'm doing quotation marks here, <laughs> deed to their campsite because the owner had died and the son didn't know anything about it. And so they had to get off that property and go somewhere. So they moved to our wonderful city of Fresno. Mm-hmm. Um, and the girls got jobs at McDonald's. I think a couple different ones. So I think they started at the same one and they were so good. Oh, because they, they were, yeah, they were so well behaved and polite and just so work oriented that they moved up in the McDonald's at their McDonald's and then they were kind of spread out at other McDonald's mm-hmm. and um, you know, after being so isolated in such a small space, like they have started talking with people and making mm-hmm. friends and realizing that this probably wasn't the best place for them. So once they were in Fresno, like Amber mentioned, Ruby had tried to run away. She would, she had a friend at the McDonald's who tried to help her. Um, she ended up getting caught because she would call uh, Elizabeth and she would kind of figure out where she was. And Wesson would beat her repeatedly. He would encourage the girls to like ignore her and kind of ice that isolation again. She couldn't go back to work. So they sent her back, I believe, towards somewhere in Santa Cruz where they had a job working at like a 
think it was like a convention center, center yeah, or some like type catering, of catering. Something. Yeah. Yeah. So she had to go back there because she couldn't go back to work with having the friend that tried to help her run away. Uh, she would also, when she tried to run away a second time, um, she ended up running out of money, had to call her mom, uh, who's Rosemary Solorio, uh, Elizabeth's sister. She told her to go back and to stop all of this and and head back home. So that's a on, ongoing thing is like that these, she keeps telling her kids her, to go back. Yeah. Her daughters run away and go to her and she's like, no, you need to return to Marcus. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Wesley made her care for the kids, but again, everybody had to ignore her. She was only there to take care of the kids. She would feel bad. Um, and so she would keep coming back and, and staying there. And finally a third time she escaped with a boyfriend and that's where Weston was like, I'm not giving you your daughter back. Like yeah. I'm keeping her, but <laughs> still encouraged her to send money to care for the kids. Yeah, that's the ongoing, that's another ongoing thing. Is all the kids, if they leave the house, have to send money back home. Yeah, because once they left Santa Cruz, the boys, the older son stayed in Santa Cruz, but they were required to send money to the family for two years of their independence. And then they were free to do what they want. But the girls had to give all, all of their, their money. money to him. Well, and that's a, definitely a controlling thing oh, with yeah. like domestic violence is mm-hmm. like, I mean, there's just so many different forms and financial mm-hmm. is a way of controlling. Yeah. You can't do anything without money. And so then Sophina, one of Ruby's uh, half sisters also ran away and she went to go live with her mom. And in this sort of situation, Marcus ended up giving her the out, like the same the boys had where she had to give her paychecks for two years. She could sleep at her mom's, but during the day she had to be at their house taking care of the kids. Again, sisters couldn't talk to her. Um, And this lasted until she became pregnant with another man's child and she was kicked out and again, couldn't take her son with her. She had to just go. So she ended up moving to San Jose with that man and would come back periodically. And again, this is the whole, like, you got to give them money. What are they going to do? They don't have any clothes. They don't have any. Your food. child's here. We're taking care Caring. of your child. So a lot of emotional manipulation used um, to make them feel guilty. In December, 2003, Gypsy also ran away, but I don't have too many details on that. She no. just took off. And during this time, Wesson's parents are trying to get them to move the family up to Seattle. So the family starts kind of, I guess, refurbishing a school bus, an old yeah. school bus, and trying to make it into, like, an RV. So all I know is that I think at one point, like, a jacuzzi was put in there, which doesn't seem practical. No. If you're putting and they, use, in an and they bought a whole bunch of coffins to use as yes. storage for the – And also and bench like chairs. Seats. Yeah. Seats. I, yeah. Very it's strange. Interesting. So they, they would work on this bus, and that's something to note, too, that the neighbors would never really see them unless they would see the older woman, like, working on the truck and trying to fix the school bus. And the neighbors didn't even know there were kids in the household that they were living in in Fresno. Because in Fresno, they were living in a, a house, I believe, that needed to be worked up. I want to say it was on Huntington or near Huntington, if I remember correctly. And the guy was like, yeah, you can live here. You got to fix it up and, and do all of that. And he didn't. So No, it and it also wasn't zoned to be a 
like residence. It was zoned to be no. The first place they lived was oh was a house, but then they got kicked out because they didn't do anything, do anything to it. And it was like a house that had been burnt down or something. Yeah, oh, so they were right. supposed yeah. to so like they were fix supposed, it. He said he could fix it, and, and he definitely could not. So or they, he just he could, but he didn't, didn't want to. So that's when they ended up living in the at the address that the incident would take place, which was seven sixty one West Hammond. Avenue, which you can't really go to anymore. It's not a house anymore. It was no. demolished. But that, like you said, was the location that was zoned as a commercial thing. I think it used to be like a law firm or something. It used to be something. It was like a commercial yeah. building on the corner of the street across from the railroad tracks. And I want to say they were basically squatters there because they had gotten evicted a bunch of time eviction notices. So in the parents incur in Weston's parents encouraging them to move to Seattle. They were fixing up the bus so they could take the kids, which kind of kickstarted this timeline. So on March 12, 2004, uh, Sophina and Ruby had been working on a plan, trying to get their children back because they knew once they left the state, it was going to be so much harder to try to get these kids back. So, oh, and I think a quick mention, which I didn't mention, and it should be mentioned, is that. Wesson is not on any of the birth certificates. So no. all of the children that he fathered with his daughters and his nieces, the girls, when they had the babies, they went to different hospitals and they put the father as unknown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he is no right or claim to these no. kids in the eyes of the law. So they were going to go back. They had all the documents. They had a lot of their family members. So male cousins, brothers, everybody was there to go help them get these kids back. So to start their plan, they invited Elizabeth to come over or she had just planned on coming over anyway. So they brought her there and they talked for a little bit. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, we got to go to the store and get some stuff. We're having like a barbecue or a party or something here later. So they took off. Elizabeth, I think, ended up staying in the house with another family member um, and was just there while all of these people took off, which I don't know if you've ever had a barbecue, but I don't <laughs> think you need that many people <laughs> to go to the grocery so, store. I mean, props to them for that working, like, yeah. because she did not be like, oh, why do all of you need to go? To go but okay. So all of them arrived at the house, 761 West Hammond Avenue, and they confronted Wesson. Uh, Sophina had managed to get inside the home for a brief moment and she was forced out by her sisters. Like it was really heartbreaking. She had her son in her hands, like was holding him and they made her let him go and kind of forced her back outside. So they refused to leave um, without the children. And it ended up with this huge back and forth between everybody trying to get the kids back. And then there were five calls made to 911 after Wes and would refuse to release the children. So the first call was placed at 2.13. And it and we have the, from the book I read, they also included the transcripts of these 911 calls. So the first 911 call was placed by Mary Salazar. And it said, we need a police officer on Weber and I'm trying to get my daughter and the person who has her won't let me take her. We're on Hammond and Weber. The phone went dead. So that was all the information that was given in the first 911 call at 2.13. A few minutes later, there is another phone call. I need officer assistance right now. A man has my daughter, the dispatcher. Who is the man that has your daughter? I don't know. I need officer assistance. The call was transferred from the dispatcher to the Fresno PD. It's actually not my daughter, but we need officer assistance. It's not my daughter. It's a friend's. 
Okay, ma'am, what's your name? It's Mary. Mary what? Mary Salazar, who is a relative of the girls, by the way, just for anyone who needs to know what Mary Salazar. She is tied to Sophina's brother. So after they gave the name, we don't have any more transcript. Then there's a third call placed a few minutes later. This is the lady who called before. It's getting really ugly out here. Hold on. Let me give you the police. The call is transferred. It's getting really physical out here. We called like 10 minutes ago. We really need someone out here. It's getting really physical. Then there is a fourth call to 911. I need some kind of help. It's getting physical. Okay, I know that. Let me transfer you again. Hello? I need some police assistance. It's getting physical. Are you Mary? No. Mary just called. The police are on their way. The last 911 call was made again by Mary Salazar because the previous call was made by another family member whose name was Valerie Gonzalez. So Mary is back to make the last 911 call. This is domestic violence. Someone has a gun. We've called several times and no one's come here. When I called 911, they transferred me to, I don't know, what city is this in? Fresno. Okay, let me transfer you. Now, this is the recording of the CHP dispatcher as they communicate with the police dispatcher as they're transferring the call. The CPH, CHP dispatcher laughs and says, every time we transfer the calls, they get more embellished. Now someone has a gun. I'm not sure. I'll let you tell, but I think it's embellished. Then the caller, the call is put through. This is Mary. It's getting really physical. More people have shown up and it's getting physical. Dispatcher, are they fighting? Caller, not all of them. Dispatcher, we have officers on the way. Officers were dispatched at 2.23. So 10 minutes after the first phone call was made and they didn't. the first officer didn't arrive until 2.35. So these times are important. So if you can, just try to remember around 2, 2.30 is when all of this stuff is happening. But just as a note, Totally not cool of this CHP dispatcher to kind of brush off and say yeah. that a situation is embellished. Because if you've ever been in an escalating situation or in a violent situation, it tends to or just, escalate. Or just even an argument. Like you could just be arguing over some some stupid shit and it can escalate. Like that's that's how most fights start. Yeah. Like it's kind of like starts building and building and building mm -hmm. and then it can explode. So easily it can escalate like yeah. in 15, 20 minutes. And if they've kept telling you like, Hey, they won't give a kid back. And now somebody has a gun. I feel like reasonable, like you could look at it and say, okay, they're fighting over a child. This could escalate. Yeah, absolutely. So. Absolutely. Definitely not appropriate behavior by the CHP dispatcher, who was never named. And even if we knew his name, we would name. We would name them, that. but yeah. But hopefully, hopefully they felt terrible, <laughs> and hopefully they get some training. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, first officer arrives at two thirty-five. Before police could arrive, Elizabeth's sister Rosemary Solorio arrives to the house. And remember, some of these are her kids, including Sophina and Ruby. So, when she arrives to the house. She didn't want the kids removed. She keeps telling the girls, like, why are you doing this? Like, stop all of this. So much so that she even swings on Sophina. So Sophina tries to kick her back. So that's when 
Um, Sophina's brothers get involved. They're trying to separate the two women. Rosemary's screaming at her, continuing to try to hit her, um, and has to be held back by one of her sons, who she's also trying to hit because he's not letting her go. So So crazy. Like, it's just such a, like, so weird. I don't know. So she is just continuing to fight. So finally, the police arrived. It takes them a second because everybody's trying to explain the story all at the same time. So when they finally get the story that the man has their children, uh, he's not present on either birth certificate, and the moms want their children back. The moms both have the the birth certificates. They show them the cop reasons that, hey, you're not on the birth certificate. You don't have any custody papers or any guardianship or any sort of document saying that you have custody of these kids. Mm-hmm. And so you have to give them back. Wesson kept saying, like, why are you doing this? And he would do this very interesting, like, manipulation thing where he would talk to the girl, like, trying to just make it about them. And it's so personal. Why would you do this? And you're just hurting everybody and and trying to say, like, we had an agreement and it's a verbal agreement, agreement. which means literally nothing. nothing. So Absolutely nothing. Um, and even if the officer knew about all of the abuse, wouldn't even be a valid like thing because it's yeah. word. Like he just kept their children. So um, after it was determined that the moms had custody, he kept refuting, saying that the kids could stay to him. At five foot nine and three hundred pounds, he blocked the door and refused to let the police enter. Kept trying to, again, talking straight to the women and and telling them to again like calm down with the mom and all of that. So at 2.50, the city attorney was called by the police to determine if the police could enter the premises, and they were told that there was no legal cause, and they were to remain outside. So the police basically were like, well, we, our hands are tied. We can't enter the house, which, I don't, what? How do they not make sense? It's like a kidnapping at this point, because the mothers are like, this guy has my kids. I don't want them to have my kids. I want my kids back. There's no legal proof that this man has. He has no claim to them. And they're like, oh, sorry, police. You you don't have probable cause to enter the house and get the children that aren't supposed to be there. Yeah. What? Um, So that's when at 3.03 PM, CPS was called and on the way, which again, with us working with the CPS system also doesn't make sense because CPS is the middleman. So Absolutely. if they deem that it's an unsafe environment for the kids, CPS can't just remove children. No. They have to call the police. Or yeah, the, the police to have to put a hold on the children. So the police are just calling someone in who, one, can't legally enter a house anyway, like has no more right to enter that house than the police. Has less do. right. Yeah, less right to enter. And also can't remove the kids without the police anyway. So CPS is really just going to show up, be like, he's going to say, no, you can't come in here. And the cops are back to square one. So again, the, this just seems the, really With Fresno County, they have, it's like a two hour response. So it's not like this, like CPS is going to come in the next 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. No, it could be up to two hours. So yeah. what were they going to do during that time? I just, it makes no sense to me. Yeah. Um, so Wesson was warned by the police. If he remained uncooperative, he would go to jail and all the children would be removed, which again, doesn't seem like something you have to warn someone at this point should seem like something like that sounds like probable cause enough to remove him and then figure out what's going on. I mean, but But, Hey, we don't know the law necessarily. So this is just our our opinion, our opinions and feelings on it. So for any of our listeners who happen to be in law enforcement and maybe can help answer some of these questions, we're, we're open. We're open to hearing it. Yeah. Because um, we just, 
are trying to logic it why this is happening. Yeah, how how this could have occurred. Yeah. So around 3.35, the police were back on the phone with the city attorney to discuss more options since at this point... So they've been there for an hour. Yes. And at this point, um, Marcus is still standing at the door. Some of the girls are in the back of the house. Like, I believe Sabrina's back there. Um, They call their sister Liz. Liz? Lice. Lice. I don't know. It's spelled L-I-S-E. I'm going to assume it's Liz. Um, so she's back there. All the kids are still in the house. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on in the house that we don't know, don't what, know what's, what's going on. Um, it's because no one could see really. Yeah. So at this point, um, Wesson's son, Serafino arrives and he gets very aggressive with the cops very quickly. Like, what are you doing? Don't hurt my father. You can't come in here. He gets very like aggressive with the police officers. Wesson's kind of trying to defuse that situation. And so the police, again, back on the phone, trying to figure out what their options are because everyone's saying you can't come in the house without a warrant. So at this time, Elizabeth finally arrives at the house because she figured out, I think because the family member she was with said, like, you can stop all of this. And that in her mind triggered, like, something's going down. Yeah. So she took off. It doesn't really say how far apart the places were, but it sounds like it was probably a good ways away at least. But really, nothing in Fresno takes more than, like, 15 minutes to get to. <laughs> yeah. So it must have taken some time for her yeah. to finally realize something was going on. So Elizabeth shows up. She keeps, again, back to the pleading, like, you can stop this. What are you doing? Why are you hurting the family? So it's a lot of the manipulation, trying to make them feel guilty for wanting their kids back. Um, so Elizabeth ends up entering the house with Kiani and Serafino. And at this point, since everyone's kind of doing their own, everyone's outside the house, neighbors are starting to come out, the police are on the phones and trying to figure out, um, Ruby and Sophina are outside, um, Weston actually retreats back in the house and Serafino takes his place at the door. And it takes a little bit for people to notice, notice. that he went in there. I believe Ruby noticed it first um, and mentions something and is talking to her brother, like, what are you doing? Like, where is he? Um, and at this point, uh, Sophina notices that he's gone and starts alerting the officers and she tries alerting the officer who's on the phone and he kind of gives her the internet like just I'm on the phone like give me a minute which yeah I'm, I'm dealing with it okay and so then she goes to another officer and is like he has a gun like he's gonna kill the kids you need to get in there he's not at the door anymore um and this is when, so Serafino's at the door and he kind of retreats into the house a little bit. I was kind of confused at the layout of everything because we don't really have pictures inside no. the house. So we don't know the whole layout. But I think he goes in at one point and comes out and Ruby's asking him what's going on. So in the book, it says that Sophina heard some gunshots, but I couldn't really find that anywhere else or anything that she said. Like she heard gunshots. She just keeps telling the police. So Serafino kind of walks towards the door. The police are like, you've got to get out of the way of the door. And he does. And um, he tells Sophina, I think he killed Sabrina and Liz. And at this point, the police drew their guns. They're kind of like looking around the house, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, Elizabeth runs outside, which is amazing that she didn't get shot because she's running outside and she starts crying and screaming. And this is really important wording for later in the trial, but she is, quoted as shouting, they're all gone. They are all gone and just crying in the mess. So Elizabeth, Ruby, Sophina, they're crying. They're a huge mess at hearing this. Um, Kiani then exits the house shouting at Sophina and Ruby saying they're gone. You're next. Um, and 
again, back to those times that we were talking about. So first 911 call went in at 2.13. Police didn't arrive until 2.35. And at some point around this time, we're looking at somewhere between 3 and 3.30 that all of this, this is, is going is down. happening. So back to, so shortly after 2 p.m., around those first calls, a neighbor reports hearing a gunshot and she knows that it is this time because she's watching soap operas in her house. And when she hears all the family arguing, all my children is on, which is on from one to two. two. Yep. And when she hears gunshots, it is, she is now watching general hospital, which is from two to, to three. three. So she knows what the time frame is. And also later on, other neighbors made similar statements about hearing gunfire, but we should note the police officers who should have been on the scene at that point, because it was around two 30. Um, Police officers never reported any claim to hear shots around that time. So I wonder if because like the argument was like because there was so much argument and chaos going on outside. I'm just playing yeah. devil's advocate here. And also and where the neighbors are. Yeah. So the neighbors are closer to the back of the, the house, house and that's where the kids were. were. Mm -hmm. But I'm, yes. but the police officers aren't reporting it. And also, too, I don't think any of the family members reported hearing no. it. But again, if they're yelling and screaming, they're not really yeah. noticing these sorts of things. Um, so at 347, SWAT's on the way. Police officers are surrounding the house. Weapons are drawn. The mobile command unit, which is this big RV where they set up this kind of police stuff, that arrives and they move Ruby, Sofina, Kiani, and Rosa um, who is not Rosemary, the mom. It's Rosa is uh, Ruby's sister. Mm -hmm. um, she, they all get put in the mobile command unit. So officers are attempting to get a view on Wesson because he's in the house. They don't know where he is. It doesn't sound like lights are on because it's everything's described as being very dark. They don't know. At some point, someone says that stuff is pushed up against a door. Nobody really knows what's, what's going, going on. on. Very chaotic. So the police are just trying to figure out like an entry point, making sure they know where he's at. They're calling to him um, as they're trying to get a view and the house is just silent and dark. SWAT then arrives and it isn't until an hour later that an officer notices a shadow moving like near a hallway. So he starts calling out to the other officers that they see motion. And that is when Wesson exits the house. He has no expression on his face and his clothes are covered in blood. So he complied as officers instruct him to raise his hands, step out further so they can get a good look. Because again, this is a very large man, 300 pounds, 5'9". So they get him to step out further. They start patting him down and they find an empty knife sheath um, and they toss it um, out of his reach and they handcuff him. They had to put his hands behind his back because his belly was so large that it would be very painful and uncomfortable to handcuff him in the front, which again, like I don't condone police brutality, but in this case, it might've been okay to make him uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, once we find out what he did, I feel like, like maybe. You yeah, like you're like, make you. him a little uncomfortable. Yeah, who but, cares about your comfort at this point? Yeah. So anyway, so they did that there as they're handcuffing him um, and they're waiting. So they have to wait because he can't fit in a police cruiser. So they need to wait for a logical larger vehicle to be brought and they say that he just calmly waits doesn't say anything doesn't have any emotion so two officers enter the house officers tello and 
Escarino enter the premise and they start to call out for the kids. So again, it's still dark. So they have their flashlights out. They're looking around and they notice a door that is a little bit open um, and they start to look around the room. So um, Officer Till is looking at another part of the house and Officer Escarino is the one who walks in. So he's looking. There's three large coffins leaning up against the wall. Again, it is very quiet in this house. There's no noise and they're continuing to call for the children to let them know it's okay. Um, as Officer Tello enters the room that Officer Escarino is in, he turns on the light switch and that's when they notice what happens. Immediately, they start calling for an ambulance and Officer Escarino runs to the corner of the room where the bodies are stacked up in a very deliberate way with the two oldest victims, 25-year-old Sabrina and 17-year-old Liz are near the base of the pile and there's a large pool of blood all around uh, the area. So Officer Escarino starts to search for any signs of life. He's checking pulses. Like, just to imagine having to dig through a pile of children I, is No, like, haunting. you don't recover from that. There, I don't see how any... Yeah. Anyway, you're recovering from that. I mean... Yeah. So he's looking diligently. He's trying to find life. And when it just... He can't. Officer Tello tells him to go take a breather. Like, we got to go search the rest of the house. He gets him to leave. And Officer Tello continues to search. Um, at first, it was believed that there were only seven victims. And um, it wasn't until CSI arrives that they um, discover that the actual total of victims is nine, um, just because some of the smaller babies were at the very bottom and it was very difficult to find them, which again, super heartbreaking. Yeah. So officers enter the RV, uh, the mobile command unit RV, and tell the women that some of the children are deceased. Kiani, um, who again was like yelling at Sfina saying they're next and all of that, mm -hmm. has no expression. Whereas the other women, including Rosa, Ruby, and Sophina, they become inconsolable. It's very upsetting. They, there's no, they, there's no one telling them who the children are, how many, many of the of children, children, because they're still trying to figure it out. So the girls have no idea. If yeah, they just don't know. Alive. Um. So again, at the end, it was discovered that there were nine victims. So the nine victims were Jonathan Wesson, who is Sophina's son. It was Sedona and Ethan Wesson, who are Rosa's children, Aviv, who is Ruby's child, Sabrina and Liz, or Liz, I keep calling her Liz because that's how it seems to be spelled, who are Elizabeth's children, Marche, who is Sabrina's son, mm -hmm. and Jeva and Illabel, who are Kiani's children. So it was discovered that all victims had been shot in the eye by a, 20, by a 22 caliber Ruger. Gunshot residue tests were done on both Wesson and Sabrina, and neither tested positive. So for those of you who don't know, gunshot residue is if you fire a gun, gunshot, like the residue from that is usually on, on your, your hand, your arm, your clothes. clothes. Yeah. Um, and so there is some controversy with this because... Sabrina didn't test positive for it, but they also didn't test her on the scene. Um, they tested her later at the morgue, right. which there's a lot of like handling right. and moving. And I mean, gunshot residue doesn't last forever. Yeah. And so that could have been possible. But to this day, I don't think they've officially said who, who shot, shot the, the kids. Cause there were no gloves found. It wasn't like she was wearing anything. Yeah. There was nothing there. So um, but Wesson also didn't have gunshot residue, which the defense will use of saying, like, he didn't kill the kids. Um, 
because he didn't fire the gun. So the knife from Wesson's sheath was also found near the bodies, but to my knowledge, there were no apparent stab wounds. So maybe it fell out. One of the girls had it and dropped it. Yeah. There's no. I wonder if the knife, if anybody had noticed the knife, was it on him when he was outside talking to the police Mm. around two 30? Like, I just probably not a detail. Anybody probably noticed, but you'd also, if you were a policeman, you'd want to, I mean, you'd think you'd notice somebody armed with a big knife. Yeah. But he's also 300 pounds. It could have been under a shirt. Yeah. Yeah, They only noticed it when they They patted patted him him down. down. So, um, interesting to note is that 18-month-old Marche, again, Sabrina's son, was shot in the left eye while all others were shot in the right eye. There's, I mean, there's nothing that really says that his suicide pact clarified anything. Yeah. I, as far as I know, there's nothing biblical about that or anything I don't know. Yeah, I have related. no idea what the um, significance would be of that. Maybe it was just a quickness type of thing. Um, but um, if somebody was holding him. It could have been the way he's turned. The way he's turned. Yeah, at 18 months. Well, 18 months. He's probably yeah. sitting up on his own. Anyway. Yeah. So Marche was shot in the left eye. The others were all shot in the right. Only Ethan, who's Rose's son, um, and Liz were shot twice. So Liz was shot twice in the eye, once at close range and once from a farther distance, which again is evidenced by the residue and, mm-hmm. and the impact of the shot, which is interesting as to why. So it makes me wonder, like, I mean, you get shot in the eye. We're not really coming back from that. But I wonder if, like, someone didn't think she, she was she dead. Like, dead. they shot her from far away and didn't know. Or she had some response like, or something. Some and they're like, oh, or something. To, we need yeah. to do it again. I don't know. Oh. Um, terrible. So she was shot twice um, in the eye. And Ethan was shot in the eye. But he also had a gunshot wound to the side. But that was later determined to be postmortem. So most likely, yeah. as they were shooting, shooting someone else, he just happened to be... In the on the floor yeah. or, or around there. So during the trial, it was noted that none of the young children had suffered any recent sexual abuse um, and that the two eldest victims died an hour after the seven children, which going back to the timeline <laughs> would have put their deaths around 3.30 when Sophina says she heard shots or when yeah. that was told that they heard shots. And the 2.30 timeline when the, the officers, officers were there... And all the yeah. children and were in the back Also, if you think about it, um, what were they doing in that hour time span? And were they, I don't know how they would have, I don't, like. What was who doing in that Sabrina hour? and Liz. Because um, those were the two that yes. were. I killed, believe But it, the I, no gunshot residue. So yeah. you had an hour to clean yourself up. Yeah, but then at some point they had to shoot. I know, but themselves. maybe Marcus, it's a speculation here. Yeah. I'm just going to, you know, thinking through what if Weston ended up shooting them and then he washed off. That is very plausible. But then also, too, you think if he would have washed that, maybe some of the blood off of him yeah. or like if their water would have gotten uh-huh. on him in some way. Yeah. Who knows? There's but he's a, a vampire. So, you know, maybe he wanted the blood on him. I don't know. Yeah. Either way, it does seem to fit a lot with the timelines. I mean, it says about yeah. an hour. It's obviously not exact. Um, so, I mean, the kids very well could have been killed the second that um, Sophina was pulled away from her son so, and they were all put in the room. Yeah. Um, but it is pretty likely that the cops were already on scene See, when it happened. When the children were killed. Um, and pretty early on. Yeah. On, in the scene. Mm-hmm. So, 
Um, as police continued to make sense of what happened, neighbors were stating that they had little knowledge that children even lived in the house. Some neighbors even noted weird smells coming from the house on occasion. There's nothing to mm. say what that had to do. Um, and so during his perp walk, as he's um, headed to jail, Wesson was asked by reporters if he had anything to say. And his response was just, I love you, which is Okay. But okay. What the? Um, So he did have some visitation, as most people do when they're locked up. But after he was arrested, Gypsy told the teachers um, and police, so teachers she knew and police officers, that she was worried about other family members becoming depressed or even trying to follow through on the suicide pact to kind of honor what it is or maybe that they felt lost and they didn't know what was going on. Yeah. So that resulted in Wesson's visitation time to be limited. Um, but once it kept being told and it was kept being reported, it seems like at some point they didn't continue to like lessen all of that. So I don't know. Um, so while he was in prison awaiting trial, he was reported as laughing in his sleep, stating that God put him in jail to help him lose weight was something he told Elizabeth saying things are cool. This is okay. Once I'm done losing weight, like. It's fine. That's why yeah. God sent me to jail. I'm pretty sure it's not all, the only reason no, you were sent no. to jail, but you do you, I guess. Um, he also shared with Elizabeth that he feels like an electrical current, something like static electricity, like that feeling in his head. Um, and that that's something that God told him not everybody has. So he has a very angelic brain. Which, okay. Well, that's probably true. Not everybody does feel static. Yeah. Not everybody feels that. Don't think we're... Yeah, aligning with angels here. So during the trial, a lot of the abuse that the family had faced came out. It was shared that when Sophina had tried to run away at some point. So after I think you had shared the suicide pact that they almost went through with, where um, that was mainly Sophina was going to enact that in the 90s. And it was found out later that they called Wesson and he said, no, don't worry about it. Well, after that, incident I believe she tried to run away and Wesson was like fine I'll take you like where you want to go I think she was trying to get up from Santa because they were at Santa Cruz at the time on those boats and yeah. then she was trying to get up north to her family I think it was like a cousin's house or something and he was like yeah I'll drive you and she was kind of off put by how calm he was about the whole thing and she was like thanks for understanding and he pulls the car over and then ends up stabbing her um and so she recalls that event during the trial, like being like stabbed in like like the a chest. chest, like like on they said like above on her upper left breast. Right? Yeah. So she was stabbed and and kind of told not to leave, and they can't do this. And and it really came out how much he told them. I think this is something else you mentioned earlier on too. They they were soldiers, like they were yeah. the soldiers in this like religious vampire army thing, and. The, during the trial, they tried to use that kind of against – the defense used it against Sabrina. Like, oh, she went through with this because she was the one who was all into knives and into guns, guns. and yeah. painted her face and um, tried to really fully delve into the vampire lifestyle. But, again, just a lot of abuse came out. Like, they were, he was very physically abusive to them and even to the young children, so the babies, because I think it was someone else – um, in the family recalled that I think it was Ruby that recalled it when the babies would cry, he would incur, he would tell them that they had to spank the kids, like more like beating them really yeah. until they stopped crying, which 
anyone who has children knows that don't hit them to make, make them, them stop crying. Yeah, <laughs> and absolutely. So he would instruct them to do that. And if they wouldn't do that, then he would hit the kids and he, he did it a lot didn't harder, really care. Probably. So he would hit them really hard. So Elizabeth would even tell them, like, you should just do it because you know it'll be how much bad worse. It's be. And I want to say he would beat not just the kids, but also the the women in his household. He would beat them with like a wooden was bat. It a baseball bat. Yeah, and he like, had, like wrapped bat. it in like duct tape or something. He yeah. made it like, really tough and he would hit them with it. And um, after running away, I had mentioned Ruby got beat, but it was like bad. Like she was bruised and, and messed up because he beat her with a bat for days and pulled her hair and all kinds like of Like she couldn't go to work. Yeah, because of all the, the wounds abuse. she had and the abuse. So that really came out during. The trial, the amount of abuse, the amount of like sexual abuse that had happened from the time that they were young until the time they were old. I think a lot of the girls had recalled, well, I think mainly it was Ruby and Sophina that recalled a lot of this because the other girls were still kind of in this supportive ground, like sometimes. Yeah, supporting and kind of standing behind Wesson. Yeah. And so they would share like incidences that happened with them when they were little kid, like I think. 11, 10, so still very much children and being molested by Wesson, um, that Ruby and Keani were, um, forced to like marry each other and perform sex acts on each other. So just a lot of psychological abuse was happening there, um, kind of binding them to each other. and, And so not just making him the abuser, but also kind of making them an abuser in some way, like, or having to do that to each other. Um, and just, yeah, like a lot of stuff. His book, again, that you had mentioned, In the Night of the Light for the Dark, was brought up a lot and all the teachings and how it kind of mirrored that because the book tied not just – in some instances, it was like a story and and there was kind of no rhymes. It was all fictional type stuff. And then in other parts, it would be very like autobiographical almost. Yeah. Um, where it would follow like the types of abuse and – justifying the incest and the polygamy and all this kind of stuff, the violent passages and and the abuse that, that everybody faced there. So a lot of that came out in the trial and it was very tough, but it did also bring to light the fact that he knew what he was doing was illegal and was planning his way around it because he would purposefully wait until the girls were 17 and a half to impregnate them. Um, because then it's not statutory rape and you don't have to really explain it. Yeah. Um, which is disgusting and terrible and no, it's still not okay. Yes. Still definitely not okay. He was found guilty on June 17th. And so he was convicted for nine counts of murder. And although they didn't, it wasn't that the jury believed that he pulled the trigger. They did believe that it was his suicide pact and his teaching and all the abuse that drove um, the girls to do this or drove other people to be doing this. So he was found convicted on all nine counts. Similar to like Charles Manson, how yeah, like they couldn't tie him actually to the location. No, but he convinced but them his, to do all that. His mind manipulation enough was enough to say, oh, okay, he's the cause of all of this. Yeah. So on June seventeenth, two thousand five, he was convicted, and uh, ten days later, on June twenty seventh, he was sentenced to death. He currently resides in San Quentin, um, where. I mean, he looks very different. He did lose a lot of weight. They cut off all his dreadlocks. Um, And he is now 72 years old 
or 73. He's around that age. And it seems unlikely that he will ever be put to death because I believe in the state of California, since having the death penalty, we've only put 33 people to death. Most of them die is, aren't we of on natural a, causes. Yeah, and aren't we on a moratorium for the death penalty right now? I I think we are. It's a controversy. People can look it up, but I'm pretty sure that we are. Like, California is not implementing the death penalty at this time. Mm-hmm. So, which, yeah. So, I mean, he's just going to sit in jail and eventually die yeah so so that, we didn't even mention the grossest well one of the grossest parts uh, was in death row like so his, very his neighbor, little his neighbor his roommate or his roommate reported, yeah. uh or cellmate roommate i don't know whatever it is <laughs> we call him a roommate we call him a roommate they're cellmates they're in a cell they're not in a room uh oh, cellmate reported that he would that wesson not this woman that wesson would masturbate and then rub it in his dreadlocks so so maybe yeah, there's I mean, a real good reason why they cut those off. Yeah, there's. I mean, can you imagine being the barber in that prison? Like, ugh. Ugh, all the that hazmat. That poor suits. person. I couldn't even imagine, and the smell. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. Yeah. No, thank you. No. Mm-mm, not having it. That was probably the weird smell the neighbor reported. Yeah, this is absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for listening to that very intense story with yeah. us. Um, and hopefully we did it justice because it didn't really get the justice. And the reason that we did this case is not only because it was really it from close our home, to home for us. Yeah, from, from our hometown. So you would think that this case would be well reported on. Yeah. But it it really isn't. You don't come across no. it mentioned very often. And even when it happened, if you were outside of Fresno, you probably didn't know too much about it because it also happened to coincide with the – um, incident of Lacey Peterson up in Modesto, who definitely got a lot of press. She was the missing pregnant woman from Modesto, and it was believed that I think it was he was sentenced for it, right? He was yes, convicted he was of he was her, convicted, her and he's also on death row for the murder mm-hmm. of Scott his Peterson. wife, yeah. uh, his eight month pregnant wife. But this these murders happened while they were doing jury selection mm-hmm. for the Scott Peterson case. And we know that that was very, very covered. Um, yeah. And, and so this one got kind of swept under the rug and there could be a lot of reasons. I mean, it was definitely something very violent and aggressive. And, and in some of the research that I did, it was kind of talked about, was it because of race? Like, was it because Lacey Peterson yeah. was a pretty white, white girl from Modesto who lives in, she was like middle class. Absolutely. Um, and whereas the Wesson family was, um, Economic the, it, thank you. And they were African-American or was it because of the like atrocities that happened to these children? People don't, don't like to know about these terrible things happening to children and it's not quite as sensationalized as unless it's like a celebrity. So something like Michael Jackson was hugely covered because of the allegations and who he was. But incest is so taboo and like they call it the ick factor. Like news doesn't want to report on something that is that polarizing and icky mm-hmm. and but it needs to be talked about and addressed because these people these, these these children and women need to be talked about and yeah, they what they went through was terrible and what they continue to have to go through I'm sure with the survivors like they lost siblings they lost children they lost family members and it has to be 
traumatic for them to still have to go through that. And then at the time this episode is released, we will be at the 16th anniversary of all of this happening and the event Mm -hmm. that took place. So yeah, um, just really the amount of strength that the survivors have to continue to carry on is amazing. I mean, that could break a lot of people and they didn't let it break them. And so that's a great thing to know. Um, as far as I know, they're living their lives and and continuing, absolutely um, continuing to survive despite what this um, evil evil man did to them and yeah. and the hold he had on them, yeah, rising above their circumstances and the mm-hmm. tragedy that happened, mm-hmm. and that that's such an amazing thing and something to really like respect and be in awe of because that takes a lot of mental fortitude that I mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have, yeah. So. Um, yeah, so really just recognizing that family for the strength of what they had to to endure and what they went through, not just through the incident, but also the trial and all of these things being brought up um, and just having that power. I believe it was at the trial that they just kind of said their piece and yeah, yeah, he didn't have control over them anymore, thankfully. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so because we're talking about some very heavy things here. Uh, we decided that we were going to try to end every podcast with some fun facts about the state that we are in. Or the city that we're visiting. And the city that we're visiting. Um, just to kind of lighten the mood, leave you guys on a little bit more of a positive note. Not so much of the the horrors that we we talk about. about. Yeah. So should we start with the state or the city? We can start with the city. Okay. So that's mine. So Fresno, the good city of Fresno, our hometown. Um, so the Central Valley, Fresno, is the raisin capital of the world. Mm-hmm. So sun-made raisins are, is located here. Uh, so I just thought it was interesting that while raisins have been around for for a long, long period of time, the raisin industry for Fresno started because in 1874, there was a shocker of shockers, a heat wave in Fresno. (laughs) You don't know our weather, it's hot. (laughs) And so the grapes that hadn't been harvested dried up on the vine. And so the farmers were like, oh shit, what are we going to do with these? We got to use all these. We got to, because we can't throw this away. It's our harvest. So the raisin industry began because the the grocers and everything decided that they were going to sell them as like these delicate delicacies. Of, mm-hmm. And so that's how the raisin industry started in Fresno was completely by accident, <laughs> which doesn't really surprise me. It's in a any very Fresno thing. <laughs> That'd be a very Fresno thing. Stumbled upon it. <laughs> Stumbled upon it, but it turned out to be lucky. So shout out to the raisin industry and all mm-hmm. the hard farm, farm workers who harvest and dry the raisins in the sun in Central Valley. Yeah. All right. So my fun fact was about the state of California and specifically where it's likely that we got our name of California from. So it was likely derived from the mythical island of California um, in the fictional story of a queen named Calafia. And it was recorded in a book called The Adventures. And I'm going to butcher this and I'm sorry. um, The Adventures of... Esplandia? Okay. I don't know. I'm going to sure. say that's right. <laughs> You're going to be closer um, at that than I am. <laughs> <laughs> By Garcia Rodriguez de Montalvo. Uh, so he wrote a book, um, and it was the fifth popular in 
in a popular Spanish chivalric romance series, so romance oh. novel. Um, so the story is about Queen Calafia, who was introduced as a regal black woman, courageous, strong of limb, yes. and large in person, almost like an Amazon type. Love it. Um, yeah, you do you, girl. The most beautiful in a long line of queens who ruled over the mythical realm of California. She is said to be desirous of achieving great things. She wanted to see the world and plunder a portion of it with her superior fighting ability using her army of women women warriors. Uh, Her kingdom was said to be a remote land rich in gold and pearls. Um, And again, they live like Amazons as well as raising like griffins and other fictional creatures. Also, it's really great to note that uh, she kept an aerial defense uh, force of griffins, fabulous animals that were native to California. Okay. Um, this, this island of California. Not us. We don't have griffins. Um, cool we did. <laughs> we totally don't. <laughs> Queen Calafia trained these to kill any man that they found. Yes. <laughs> so, um, I mean, she sounds really awesome. Um, it seemed like the whole book, I didn't go too much into it, um, seemed very interesting. But in the end, it ultimately was a romance novel. Um, and it's kind I would of like... totally be down to read this if I spoke Spanish. Yeah, you would. Um, but then she marries a man at the end and gives up kind of... God, her God damn it. <laughs> I mean, it's a romance novel in the 1510s. So, um, so yeah, so she ended up um, fighting alongside... And she ended up fighting alongside Muslims. And her name may have been chosen to echo the title of a Muslim leader who is known as the Caliph. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's possible that the name California was meant to imply that the island was Caliphate. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So she was introduced, I guess, in the end, like they're fighting the people. It has to do with like Constantinople and all that. So they're fighting. She's yeah. fighting with them to battle the Christians and then something. Happened, okay. Or I think that was the overall just I kind of like skimmed the Wikipedia page, but because um, it's a very thorough like description of this. Yeah, book. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So in the end, she ends up, I think, falling in love with like this. Was it a Muslim leader or like a? He better be Christian awesome. Leader. Like yeah. So she followed. It sounded like they were still going to go. Like on I'm adventures. picturing Xerxes in movie <laughs> three hundred. Like awesome. You can't. Please. He's <laughs> just some lame guy. Yeah. So I don't know. So she fell in love with some dude, and I guess they were still going to go on adventures. I mean, this says is the fifth in a romance series. So who knows? Oh. There's probably multiple books, but either way, I think she ends up like, cause she doesn't really have a religion. So she's just kind of following this religion. And I think at some point she ends up marrying him because of Christianity. I don't know. Anyway, it gets really weird, but it's dope that we had this Amazon queen like this, yeah. who trained Griffins to kill men um, in her army. Oh, and also to all of their armor and weapons were made out of gold. Cause of guess course what? they were. Cause guess what you find in California? Gold. Gold. So that's where we potentially got our name. So I thought it was a really cool fact. So if any of you have ever heard of that story and or read the book, please share. So yeah, um, thank you again for joining us. There's a couple of things um, you can do if you want to stay in touch. So you can follow our Instagram and our Facebook at uh, SOM podcast. Um, you can also, if you have a, sh- a story from a state that you'd like to share or would like us to cover at some point or just have some general knowledge of things we potentially got wrong in this story. Because, you know, hey, we, we're human. I, I like to pretend that I'm perfect all the time, but I know I'm not. Yeah. So yeah, so if we'll, we mis- we'll do corrections if need be. Yeah. If we mispronounce something, misquoted something, or if you know more about this, that you something interesting you'd like to share, uh, you can email us at 
stateofmurderpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Um, so yeah, reach out to us and we will see you next week as well, we travel, travel to Oregon. Travel up the I-5 because I guess Californians like to use interstates and street <laughs> names. Yeah. SNL. I didn't know it was a thing until I watched that up. The Californians on SNL. Oh, yeah. And they're like, <laughs> oh, I took the 405 to the 101 to the, yeah. you know. Anybody who's lived in LA, you <laughs> talk in terms of freeway. So, yeah, subscribe so, and listen to us. Yeah, and we'll keep you posted. Thanks, guys. Thank you.